Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of this day and the gift of this time in community and fellowship. We thank you for the gift of your word that it is alive with your spirit, that your voice continues to speak to us through the words of the Bible. So we pray tonight, Lord, as we open these sacred pages, that these words would speak to each one of us. You knew each one of us would be here tonight, and you have a message, a word for every single one of us. And so we pray we would be attentive, be open and ready to receive whatever it is you have for us. We lay this time at your feet, and if we are distracted, worried, anxious, uncomfortable in any particular way, Lord, we pray just that your spirit of peace would come upon us to help us know that, that you know each one of us, that we are loved in this place, and that you see us as your children, desiring us to be in deeper relationship with you. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that we would be able to do that, that we would be attentive to you and to how you speak through one another, through, through each other here. So help us to listen to one another's sharing, listen to the movement of the Spirit within us as we dive into your word. And we just pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the fourth Sunday of Advent. The fourth week of Advent lasts not even a full 24 hours, or I guess a whole 24 hours, until it is Christmas Eve in the evening. So we only have this Sunday to celebrate the rest of this season of Advent. Uh, but we're going to dive into the gospel for Sunday. Again, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. So we're going to read this twice through, as we always do. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. Okay, so here we go. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the most familiar stories in the New Testament, you've probably heard it before, or seen it depicted in art, or at least you're familiar with the story. So I'll give you a little bit of context of what happens here before we read this a second time. At the beginning of Luke, uh, we don't start with the angel coming to Mary. We start with the angel Gabriel coming to Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are barren. They're old. They have not been able to have children. And that, at that time in society, was considered a very shameful thing. Uh, it was as if God took away blessing from you, so you had done something wrong or were not as devout as you were supposed to be or something like that. That's how they often misinterpreted those sort of things, very unfortunately so. And then the angel appears to uh, Zechariah and says, your son is going to be with child in, in old age, and he will prepare the way of the Lord and announces the birth of John the Baptist. So when it says in the sixth month, this is six months later after that has happened. Okay, And now another miraculous birth, but slightly different circumstances, obviously. And the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to pronounce another type of miraculous birth. And so that's how Luke begins his gospel. He starts saying, I am setting out to investigate everything accurately anew. All that had been written up until this point was Mark and Matthew when Luke wrote. And we don't have any of the birth narrative that we have in Luke in any of the other Gospels, which means Luke went out to get eyewitness testimony from what happened and who must he have talked to? Mary herself and Zechariah or Elizabeth themselves to be able to determine what happened when these angels appeared. And so we have this brand new eyewitness testimony at this time, first written by the Gospel, or by the, the gospel writer Luke. And we're reading these words now um, to be reminded of what happens in this Advent season or what we're anticipating in this Advent season to happen at Christmas. So that gives you a little context. We're going to read this a second time now that you understand the scene and how Luke is setting this up. Um, and remember, they're in, uh, they're in Bethlehem. Um, they've they've uh, traveled because of a census to go there, even though they're living in Nazareth. And... Um, <clears throat> Well, that's when they're born. They're in Nazareth right now. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so they're in, Mary's in Nazareth, and she has this, this uh, interaction with the angel Gabriel. Um, now that's, that's all been established, that you have the context, the image in your mind, the second time as we read through this, I invite you to listen and just see if a particular word or phrase stands out to you. What resonates with you? What detail strikes you? Is there something going on in your own life that this speaks to? Maybe it's a singular word that just jumps off the page. doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage. It just resonates with you for some reason. Think about those things the second time through. Why is the Lord having this stand out for you in particular? What might he be trying to say to you? 
All right, second and final time through Luke chapter 1, starting verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you now to take a few moments to reflect back over the passage. What stood out to you? What struck you and why? Um, if you're watching or listening to this later, let us know in the comments. Uh, but for those of us here, uh, we're going to take about the next 10-15 minutes at your table. So if you're at a smaller table, feel free to combine with other people. Uh, and we're just going to share what struck you, what stood out to you, and any questions that you have about this passage. Then we'll bring it back together in a large group for some teaching and Q&A. So take about the next 10 or 15 minutes at your tables. So some, uh, some context for this passage that I think will help. Um, this passage is one where we get a lot of different teachings about Mary as well, some of her different titles, um, some of the Marian uh, dogmatic teachings uh, on the Blessed Virgin Mary. But before we go into that, I, um, I'm really compelled to kind of go back to the beginning, to Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, or rather verse 2, I'll read from verse 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, and the earth was without form or shape. It's without form or shape. In Hebrew, that is tohu vabohu. There was no form, no shape. The world was barren. It was, out, was without fruitfulness, without growth. And God brings life. He brings life. That's what he does. But when human beings turn away from God, do you remember the punishment to Eve? Okay, what, what does God punish Eve with? Pains in childbearing, right? Sorry, ladies. Like, that's what, that's what we've all always read. That's how it's often translated. This is in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, he makes this promise about a future redeemer that will descend from the woman, that will undo everything that just happened. But in verse 16, he gives this punishment, and he says, To the woman, he said, I will intensify your toil in childbearing. 
Your pain, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, how most people interpret that is that childbirth before the fall was not painful, and after sin came into the world, it became painful. But if you look at the original Hebrew, the word that's used for childbearing does not mean giving birth. It means conception. It means there will be toil in conceiving children, not in birthing them. And in fact, if you turn to Hosea chapter 9, verse 11, we have a, a, a kind of interpretive context for this, that in Hosea chapter 9, verse 11, three different words are used. He says, Ephraim is like a bird, their glory flies away. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And the word that's used in Genesis is not birth, leda. It's not pregnancy, beten, it's conception, heraivan. That's the word that's used. And so it's for this reason that you see time and time again after this in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, people like Abraham and Sarah. And what's their problem? They're old and they cannot have children. They are barren. Because of the effects of sin, because of the effects of our disobedience to the Lord, the fruitfulness and the abundance of God are disrupted. And we are no longer able to enjoy the fullness of life. And this shows up time and time again in the stories of these significant people in Scripture who pray to God for healing, who pray to God for a child. And God comes, usually sending a messenger in the form of an angel, to pronounce some miraculous birth. He sets this precedent very often in the Old Testament, to the point where if you were a Jewish person and you heard the, the gospel passage that we just read, you probably would have been like, here he goes again. God doing the same thing he's always done. It would not have sounded that unfamiliar, okay? Angels come to announce many of these births. Uh, one of them is in Genesis chapter 11, when Abraham and Sarah, as I said, they're in, old, they're in their old age. They're 90 or 100 years old, and God blesses them with a child. Then they have a son named Isaac. Isaac meets a girl named Rebecca. Guess what? Also barren in Genesis chapter 25. Blesses them with two children, Jacob and Esau. Jacob meets a girl named Rachel. Ends up accidentally marrying his, her sister, Leah, but still nonetheless is in love with Rachel. Ends up marrying her too. I know it's weird. But Rachel, his beloved, guess what? Leah can have a lot of children. Rachel, barren, Genesis chapter 29. But God eventually blesses her with two children, Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph, the patriarch who leads all of the people safely into Egypt during the middle of a drought. You see, all these very significant moments in biblical history would not have been possible without these people who were barren, who were affected by the, the way sin entered in the world and was affecting their ability to bring forth life. If they had not prayed and they had not been obedient to God and God had not worked miraculously, while at the same time setting up a pattern to where he could be sure that when this happened, this final time with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Yes, it would have been surprising, but it would also have been abundantly obvious and clear who was at work, that it was the Lord. This continues in the period of the judges. We have one of the final judges, Samson. Probably heard the stories of Samson and Delilah. Well, Samson's mother, who's not named, the wife of Manoah, she is barren. She cannot have children. She goes and she prays. An angel um, actually appears to them and says that they will uh, be with child. And he will be a very powerful man, a powerful judge. His power will rest in his hair. Later on, Hannah, she's in the temple praying for a child. 
because she is one of, of two wives to her husband, and her other wife, the other wife is always belittling her because she can't bring forth children for their husband. And so she cries and she cries and she cries, and the priest says, get out of here, woman, thinking she's drunk. And she says, no, Lord, like I've been praying for a child. And in that desperation, God grants her a child, and she gives birth to the prophet Samuel, the prophet who announces the kingship of King Saul and King David a very prominent figure in the Old Testament. Without this miraculous intervention of God, we would not have. And then, in the Gospel of Luke, we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. Very much like Abraham and Sarah, they are old in age. They're not young like Mary. They're up there, past the years of normal childbirth. And God comes and works this miracle, very much reminiscent of what he's done in the Old Testament. And then he comes to Mary. And Mary is very unusual in the sense because she's betrothed, but she's not yet married. She hasn't had this struggle of childbearing yet, but she's had a pattern of faithfulness in her life that's evident in what we see in the pages of Scripture. It's a singular marriage. There aren't other wives. And it's clear by her obedience and her faithfulness, God is doing something very unique in her that he was building toward in all of these other moments that angels came to pronounce. All of these ways in which that barrenness that began in the very beginning, that God brought creation into, and then sin brought that barrenness back again, that God was at work in undoing all of that so that sin would be no more. I say all of that because this is one of the biblical places where we have the precedence that Mary is sometimes called the new Eve. Jesus, the new Adam, Mary, the new Eve. That Mary we believe, was immaculately conceived. She was conceived without sin. Who else was conceived without sin? Adam and Eve. They were created perfectly. They were given free will. They were given a choice. Mary is preserved from sin in her womb. And we see that in the original language of the Hebrew when uh, the angel Gabriel comes to her and he says, Hail, favored one. In the original Greek, those words are kare kekare tomene, which means rejoice, one who has been filled with grace. In fact, the exact conjugation of that verb means it's something that has already happened in the past, but is persisting to the present. A very specific conjugation of that verb. Verb. That's one place where we have this precedent where something special happened to Mary before this moment to preserve her and give her the ability to potentially say, yes. Does anyone else hear that? No? It's a really, really high-pitched frequency. Nobody else hears that? Oh my gosh, that's really going to bother me. Sorry. I have synesthesia, so like my whole left eye just like turned green. Okay. Okay. I'm going to try and concentrate now because this is not stopping. Um, sorry. So anyways. Oh, that's so annoying. Okay. Nobody can hear that. Oh my gosh. That's okay. Wow. We're going to take a deep breath. Okay. I can only see out of this eye. All right. Um, where was I? Ad, uh, Mary is the new Eve, okay? She's immaculately conceived. She's born without sin. Gabriel announces this to her, and she's greatly troubled at this kind of responsibility that comes with this announcement that comes from the angel. What can this mean that I've been preserved with grace? Okay? Mary is also uh, considered less evidence here, but another title that is relevant and why we uh, honor Mary and dignify her in the way that we do is that Mary is sometimes called the new Ark of the Covenant because she is the mother of God. She bears God within her, just like the Ark of the Covenant bared the presence of God to the people in Israel in the Old Testament. 
Okay? And so we see that in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. God's temple in heaven was open, and the Ark of the Covenant could be seen in the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a violent hailstorm. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun. So in Revelation, the vision of the Ark of the Covenant comes with the vision of a woman, and that is Mary. And the interesting thing about the Ark of the Covenant is that for many years, it was traveling with them in the desert while they wandered, Moses and the Hebrew people. When they came into the Promised Land, they built the temple, and it dwelled in the Holy of Holies in the temple, in the innermost sanctuary where Zechariah was when the angel Gabriel spoke to him. But the Ark of the Covenant was not there. It had been lost. When the first temple was destroyed, there's this one not often read or known about scene that happens in 2 Maccabees chapter 2. And it says, in the records, it will be found that Jeremiah the prophet ordered the deportees to take some of the fire with them from the temple as indicated, and that the prophet, in giving them the law, directed the deportees not to forget the commandment of the Lord or be led astray in their thoughts when seeing the gold and silver idols and their adorn adornments. It goes on. The same document also tells how the prophet, in virtue of an oracle, ordered that the tent, tabernacle, and the ark should accompany him and how he went to the very mountain that Moses climbed to behold God's inheritance. This is Mount Nebo, not Mount Sinai, when he, at the end of his life, could oversee the promised land. When Jeremiah arrived there, he found a chamber in a cave in which he put the tent, the ark, and the altar of incense that he sealed the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up intending to mark the path, but they could not find it. So Jeremiah the prophet, he takes the Ark of the Covenant, he hides it up in a cave, and it's never to be seen. The Ark of the Covenant held the law, the manna from heaven, the bread, and the staff of Aaron, the side of his priesthood. Mary is called the new Ark of the Covenant because she gives birth in a stable, which was in a cave outside of Bethlehem. And she gives birth to the word, the law, made flesh, the bread of life, the manna, and the new high priest, as in the embodiment of the staff of Aaron. He is all of those things that the ark contained, and she herself represents the new vessel through which God is going to be born into the world. That is why it's so important that we honor the Virgin Mary. Not because she is important, but because Jesus is important. And because Jesus is important, she needed to be important to bring him into the world. And she demonstrated that importance by her faithfulness. And so there's a lot of places in this passage where we get some of those precedents of our beliefs in the Blessed Virgin Mary, and I wanted to explain some of those because I think they're helpful, and a lot of our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters may have questions about them, people you may know. Why do you honor Mary? Well, read no further than these passages. Read them in their original context with this whole illuminated background, okay? Uh, a couple final things before we open it up for questions. Uh, in our first reading, you'll hear uh, this reading from 2 Samuel 7. It's this promise, this oracle that comes to the prophet Nathan to King David. And it says, after the king had taken up residence in his house, the Lord had given him rest from enemies on every side. He Basically, he wants to build a temple for God because the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. Nathan answers him, whatever is in your heart, go and do for the Lord is with you. But then the Lord comes to Nathan and says, go tell David, thus says the Lord, is it you who build me a house to dwell in? I've never dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up from Egypt to this day, but I have been going about in a tent or a tabernacle. As long as I have wandered about among the Israelites, did I ever say a word to any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people? What have you built me? A house of cedar 
So he basically says, don't do this. Someone who comes after you will do this. And eventually his son, Solomon, will build a temple. But this is the word he uses. He says, when your days spring after you, or when your days have been completed and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Goes on, your house and your kingdom are firm forever before me. Your throne shall be firmly established forever. The angel Gabriel uses that exact same language in verse 33. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The same language of the temple, the same language about the presence of God that followed the Ark of the Covenant is being used to talk about Mary bringing forth this child who could, in all other circumstances, just be another child in the midst of the Roman Empire at this time in first century Israel. But the angel Gabriel is using very specific language to say everything that you've been waiting for, everything that has been promised about the Messiah is coming to fruition now. And he will undo your yes and his yes will undo all of that barrenness, that fruitlessness, the effects of sin that have been weighing on you as a people generation after generation since the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. All of that being pronounced in these simple words, this simple encounter between Gabriel and the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there's a lot else here, but I wanted to kind of point that out because it, 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 um, it provides some context. We can open up for questions in a moment, but the thing that stood out to me that I just want to pose as a question for reflection, that Mary has this ability to effortless, seemingly effortlessly say yes, and that was probably done so by a life of faithfulness and obedience. You know, you don't suddenly just say, sure, Lord, whatever you want with my life, if you haven't had this habitual ability to be faithful to God in all the other aspects of your life. And it just made me ask myself, what would be possible in my life if I was able to say yes to the Lord? What would be possible in your life if you weren't afraid of saying yes to whatever God asked of you? And maybe that meant letting go of certain things, certain plans, certain ideas you have about your life or how it's going to play out. What would be possible if you were able to give a 100% emphatic yes to the Lord, even though the instructions as to how this is going to play out are not given? Mary is not given a playbook. Mary's not given a set of Ikea instructions about how to raise this child and how he's going to be the Messiah. She's given, at best, page one. And then the angel says, see ya, and leaves. And she is still able to be faithful. What would be possible if we had that type of faithfulness? What could God do in your life if you were willing to say yes and have no fear whatsoever? So with that being said, what things stood out to you in this? What other questions do you have about this reading? Daniel. Uh, I'm confused about verse 31. Verse 31. So verse 31 says, you will conceive in your womb. Um, and then Mary replied, how can this be since I have no relation with a man? So verse 31 is saying future tense and then with uh, verse 34, it's a present tense, so I don't yeah. confused on why she answered in that way when she betrothed to Joseph. So she could she could conceive in the future still. She could. Why was she saying that? 
Yes. Yeah, so this is another one of the dogmatic teachings about the Virgin Mary, is that she was a perpetual virgin. Okay? So the church teaches that Mary was a virgin for her entire life, and that she never entered into the sexual act with Joseph. Now, there are a couple different historical precedents for this, where there is actually writings among a lot of the church fathers that say that Mary, when she was a young child, was brought to the temple and made a perpetual vow of virginity. And she was going to live as a virgin in the temple. And when this was announced to her, um, this wasn't to disrupt her vow of virginity, which is why she asks the angel, how can this be? Basically saying, are you asking me to break this vow? And the angel is telling her, no, this is how practically this is going to work. That at this time she was secured a husband, and these writings of the church fathers say that Joseph had been older, potentially married previously, and was entrusted, uh, Mary was entrusted to him so that she would be cared for and provided for in this vow that she had made in the temple when her parents eventually age and die, that she would have someone to care for her. Uh, that was kind of the arrangement that some of the church fathers wrote about what Mary and Joseph um, were like. That's not in the Bible, so we can't say that that's doctrinally true, but a lot of them write about that. Um, so if that's to be, uh, to be believed, then she is asking about the practical nature. How can this be? If that's not to be believed, still, she's betrothed to Joseph. They are legally married, but they have not yet celebrated their wedding ceremony, which was when the act of consummation happened. So they would not yet have been able to conceive a child. It wouldn't have been appropriate for the marriage ceremony at that time. So she could have conceived Jesus with Joseph, but it's clear here that the angel is saying, no, this is going to work a different way. That You have not yet conceived. It is going to happen. I am telling you how it's going to happen so you are not confused. And it would be very confusing if Mary did not persist in her vow of virginity continuously because then the paternity of Jesus would be ambiguous. So it's another piece of evidence to show that Mary must have remained a perpetual virgin because otherwise the paternity of Jesus could have been called into question. And that would have been very bad for the church trying to argue that Jesus is the son of God when Joseph is over here being like, yeah, I'm married to her though, like, you know. Um, so that would be kind of complicated. So that's why there's a difference in tense. Yeah, great question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Verse 18, Zechariah kind of asks a similar question uh, yes. to the angel, but he gets punished with speechlessness. Yeah. And Mary doesn't get the similar treatment. I've always been confused. Do you know why that is? Or? Yes, yeah. So there's so many similarities. If you compare the story of the angel coming to, to Zechariah and, and Gabriel coming to, to Mary, I mean, very, very much similarities, like in the exact language. They're both greatly troubled. The angel speaks to them, says, do not be afraid. You will bear a son. Uh, tells them what they will call the son. He will be great. They reply to the angel. The angel answers that they are Gabriel sent from God. Uh, and then this word, behold, that this, this thing is going to happen. And so the conversation plays out almost exactly the same. And yet they both question the angel. Mary is not punished, but Zechariah is. And the teaching on this is that, wow, my voice just went through puberty again. But the teaching on this is that uh, Zechariah, because he's, of old, he's in old age, he's asking a question, how can this be, as if he doubts the ability for this to happen. Mary doesn't doubt the ability for it to happen. She's asking a practical question. How is this going to work? Do you want me to break my vow of virginity? What's going to happen? So she's asking a question, I'm going to be faithful. Tell me how this will happen. Zechariah is asking a question, 
are you sure this is possible? So his is a question that has a little bit of a, a tinge of doubt. Hers is more asking for direction so that she can be obedient. Yeah. Questions? Yes. Questions. Please. Um, the first question is, uh, I would like to have a better idea, um, better sense of the role the Holy Spirit plays in um, the conception of Jesus. Sure. So as mentioned in verse 35, the angel said, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and called holy. The Son of God. Mm -hmm. So, do I have a better sense of the role the Holy Spirit plays in this gospel reading. Okay. And the second question was, um, just curious about the role of the sixth month, why the, the angel Gabriel came um, to Mother Mary in the sixth month, and mm -hmm. as well, why also Elizabeth was conceived and this is the sixth month and telling her at the sixth month as well, both verse 26 and 36. Yes, okay, so what role does the Holy Spirit play in this whole act of conception? And why is it specified twice that this is the sixth month of her pregnancy? Uh, so first, I'll do the sixth month because that's one is a little bit easier. Um, so that, first of all, is a note that they wanted to emphasize, that they knew exactly the timeline of these pregnancies, that John the Baptist was going to be older and yet would submit himself to someone younger than him, which was very unusual for this time if that person wasn't very important. But also, it helps us actually provide a date for the birth of Jesus that's actually around Christmas. So how we do this is that in the first chapter of Luke, Zechariah, as I said, he's in the Holy of Holies. They're drawing lots to see who is going to go in and make the sacrifice or the offering in the holiest part of the temple. That only happened one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement, which is on or about the fall solstice, the first day of fall. So let's say about September 21st. This announcement of conception happens six months later, March 21st. The announcement to Mary, you will be with child, nine months later, about December 21st. So it's where a lot of the people who interpret these different timelines in Scripture eventually settled on a date in November or December. These were some of the earliest proposed dates of the celebration of Jesus' birth that actually align with some of the textual details. It was also specified because they were probably not in close contact. Uh, they were living up in uh, Nazareth, which was up in the region of Galilee. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were down in Judea hill country, which was a further distance away. So they would only see each other potentially on pilgrimage feasts, which were about three times a year, but only mandatory for the men. So the women may not have seen each other, so Mary may not have even known that Elizabeth was pregnant. So the angel is telling her this so that she can then go and help her cousin in pregnancy, which is what happens immediately after this. Okay. So that's why the sixth month is specified, so various reasons. What role does the Holy Spirit play in all of this? This is a really interesting one because it says the Holy Spirit uh, will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This word overshadow in Greek, episkiazo, is also used at the transfiguration when the power of God overshadows the hill when Jesus appears in his glorified form. It uh, is used when Peter's shadow falls upon people in Acts chapter 5 and they are healed. And it's also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that's used for the power of God coming down upon Mount Sinai. So all of these kind of efforts that have this miraculous, supernatural healing power and presence of God, this word is used. So it's to show this isn't a normal conception of pregnancy. God is intimately involved in this. And Mary is sometimes called the spouse of the Holy Spirit. 
because she's in perfect relationship with all three persons of the Trinity. She's the perfect faithful daughter of God the Father. She's the perfect mother to God the Son. And she's the perfect spouse to God the Spirit. All three are present with her and in this whole process of her life in the conception of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit, one of the ways we uh, talk about the Trinity is that God is love. It says that in 1 John 4, 8. That if you do not know love, you do not know God, for God is love. And in any loving relationship, you need the lover, the beloved, and the love in between them. And so you have, like in marriage, the, the husband is the lover, the wife is the beloved, the love between them is so strong, you name it nine months later. It's another person. So the same thing is true with the Holy Trinity. God the Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of the love in between them. And so it makes sense that love incarnate, this kind of presence of God, the powerful loving presence of God would come upon Mary so that she would conceive. The three persons of the Trinity are always united in mission. Though they are different in persons, they are one divine being. So if God is present, Jesus is present, the Holy Spirit is present, but they are revealed to us in different ways for different purposes, if that makes sense. So the language there kind of speaks to the supernatural presence of God and also this kind of marital spousal relationship that Mary models for us that we are also meant to embody because we as the church are the bride of Christ. And that's another reason why we look to Mary as our example, because she shows us how to be the bride of God, the bride of the Holy Spirit. Yes? Uh, also two questions. Earlier you were talking about um, people conceived without original sin. Yes. I was curious if uh, John the Baptist, if he had heard, was on that list. Uh, hmm. Two, uh, the, the, our passage ends with then the angel departed from her. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if there was any significance in that. Why not just leave that out entirely or why put it right there? Yeah. So was John the Baptist conceived without sin and why specify that the angel departed from her? Uh, I'll do what I did before. I'll answer the second one first. Um, so I think it's interesting and important that they specify the angel departed from her because we know she was given no further instruction. So as I, as I was speaking before, she becomes a model of faithfulness for us. That we look to her and we see Mary was given no future information about how this would play out. And yet she said yes. It's clear that no other information was given. Why? Because the angel departed from her. And so we can see that as a model for us to follow. That even when we don't have all the information about how things are going to play out, we're still called to say yes and be faithful. Another reason why that's significant is because details are not in the Bible by mistake. And so simply by the fact that that's there, it's probably because an eyewitness witnessed it and told Luke about it, which is another reason why we know Luke sat down at some point with the Virgin Mary and she was like, yeah, and the angel left. And he's like, okay, and he wrote it down. You know, like, it's just like details where in the, the storm at sea, Jesus was below deck on, asleep on a cushion. It's like, well, who cares where he was sleeping? There's a storm. Well, you know that that's true because of the detail. Like, why is the detail relevant? Otherwise, if someone's not relaying everything they can remember about the story because it was so significant and every detail was embedded in their memory because of the powerful things that happened. So it's, uh, those little details are kind of evidence of the eyewitness testimony. It doesn't read like an old legend long ago in a land, land far away, right? You know, in the gospel, is it this gospel or in the gospel of Matthew? No, it's in this gospel. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah. Like these are real people in real places, things that really happened. And so all of these details are very important to remember. Um, now, speaking of whether John the Baptist was preserved without sin, uh, we, theologically, we would say no. 
that the only people who were created without sin or immaculately conceived, as you could say, are Mary, Jesus, Adam, and Eve. Uh, and so Mary and Jesus model the new Adam and Eve, as I said before, just to undo the wrong that they did in the beginning. John the Baptist, however, is specified as someone who has been given the Holy Spirit from the moment that he was in the womb. But it wasn't specified that that Holy Spirit was to preserve him from sin. It was to animate him in such a way that even in the womb, he was proclaiming and making a way for the name of the Lord, which is why at the moment of the visitation, Mary greets Elizabeth and the child in her womb, in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps, acknowledging even in utero that this is the one that he's preparing a way for. So that's why the Holy Spirit animates him, not to preserve him from sin, but to give him his mission even from the moment he is in the womb so that he can respond to it even as a child with no awareness of what he's doing. Yeah, yes? When was the last recorded angel visit? When was the last recorded angel visit? In scripture, um, I would say... Whatever, whenever. Oh, well, I mean... Okay, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm one to believe, like, today, probably, but is there a definitive, uh, like, process of analysis to confirm from the Vatican that an angel actually appeared to this person and it was legitimate? No. They only have that process to formalize things like Marian apparitions to approve them or the causes for saints if a miracle happened. And in some cases, the pronouncement of said miracle could involve a saint or an angel physically appearing and communicating to a person. Only then would they actually investigate and approve it. So I don't know when the last uh, apparition that involved an angel that was formally approved in some way by the Vatican happened. But they're happening all the time and currently being investigated all the time. Question. Yes? When did Mary know Jesus was going to die? When did Mary know Jesus was going to die? Um, if not in the conversation with Gabriel, uh, because of the fact that like there's a huge weight of what Jesus was going to do and who he was going to be, um, there's a pretty clear indication that when she brings Jesus to the presentation at the temple and the prophet Simeon tells her, you, your heart, a sword shall pierce. He prophesies that to Mary, to her face, uh, when Jesus is presented in the temple, which is somewhere between eight and 40 days after his birth. So very, very much in the beginning of his life. Yeah. Other questions, comments, things that stood out to you? Yes, sir. What's the significance of Gabriel being the angel that told her about, yeah, so what's the significance of Gabriel? Gabriel is one of the archangels who's named in scripture. The archangel uh, Angelon in Greek means messenger. So arch means highest or like greatest messenger. So the archangels have the, uh, the job of conveying or uh, the most important mission uh, messages in salvation history or intervening in the most important ways uh, on God's behalf uh, with humanity. And so the book of Tobit actually specifies that there are seven archangels. We have in our Roman Catholic tradition, three of them named. And one of them is Gabriel. He's the one that probably shows up most frequently. He's probably have the most written about him. Uh, we know the most probably and have the biggest devotion to Michael, the Saint, uh, Saint Michael the Archangel, but he really only shows up in Revelation battling uh, the, the beast. And then Raphael, who shows up in the book of Tobit. Um, the other four are named in other Eastern traditions. Sometimes their names are um, varied. 
They usually agree on Raguel and Uriel, and then um, the other two names are kind of up in the air, depending on who you're talking to, what tradition you go to. But in some traditions, they have specific names, specific roles. Uriel is believed to be the angel with the flaming sword that guarded the uh, Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are kicked out. He's believed to be the person who had that job um, in most traditions. Um, and then I, I'm not familiar off the top of my head with the other ones, but they're the ones who play the most significant role of any of the other angels in interacting with humanity in the recorded ways or testimonies that we have throughout salvation history. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. You know, I read somewhere that Mary actually communicated with angels. And verse 29 kind of uh, verifies that because, I don't know, if an angel shows in front of me, I would have no time to be to ponder whatever message that angel, I would be, I would have a heart attack. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not really sure why it would be up for dispute if Mary communicated with angels, because otherwise, like, this whole gospel passage would make no sense. Like, she's having a conversation with an angel, you know, so she's clearly communicating with them. Um, but maybe before this point or throughout the rest of her life, maybe there are other writings among church fathers or something that say that she continued to do that. I don't know. But um, it's clear that she has the ability to do that. Um, but I don't think that's something unique to her. Um, I think maybe because she wasn't, she didn't experience the um, the stain of original sin, she was more receptive to and aware of the presence of angels. Because all of us have at least one angel with us all the time, our guardian angel. And whether or not we're aware or receptive to the presence of that angel could have to do with the fact that we are busily like uh, attentive to other things, or we are shrouded by the fact that we have original sin or that we're struggling with some habitual sin that prevent us from seeing the presence of the divine in our midst. But we all have that capability. Uh, God gave us our guardian angels for a reason. We have the belief that we can ask them to pray for us and prayer is communication. So we all have the ability to commune with angels, to speak to them and potentially to allow them to speak to us. It's whether or not that kind of uh, pathway of conversation is open and uninhibited by sin or by distraction. Yeah. And another reason why Mary is a great role model for us, because she shows us what can happen when you are completely uninhibited and devoted to the Lord, how you can have this ability to commune with the angels. I think there is actually a, uh, I don't know why this just like lightning bolted my head, but I think I might be making this up. I'm fully admitting that right now, but I think I've read that there's a tradition somewhere that says that the angel Gabriel was actually Mary's guardian angel, um, but I don't know, because there's another tradition that says St. Michael was Jesus's, um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100, don't quote me on any of that, but it would be super cool. Yes? Uh, just curious if you have heard um some saying that Jesus' birth was actually took place actually sometime around Yes, yeah. Some people claim that simply because there were shepherds tending their flocks. And their whole argument is that wouldn't happen in the wintertime. And I don't know about you, but like I, I'm thinking that like first century Israel didn't have the same kind of weather-based tendencies and comfort and climate patterns that we have. And that if you depend on your flock for survival, you're going to tend your flock all year round to make sure you have food and wool and to, a way to make a living. So most biblical scholars like don't really give that particular ar argument a lot of credence. Some of it is just like the actual date that it was celebrated was disputed and was moved several times. I think the earliest date 
was somewhere in late November, like around our time for Thanksgiving. Um, but eventually it got settled on December. The church celebrating the birth of Jesus on December doesn't definitively say that we believe that's the day he was born. That's just the day we celebrate it. And another reason why we celebrate it this time of year is because it's the time of year when it is darkest during the day and then shifts to get lighter and lighter and lighter during the day as a symbolic representation of Jesus being the light of the world and shining light in the darkness. So there's a lot of reasons why we celebrate it, but none of them are saying we definitively declare that we historically believe this is the exact date that Jesus was born. So there's no need necessarily to defend it. It doesn't really matter when we celebrate it. Other people will try and uh, align the birth of Jesus with other pagan festivals or births or celebrations of other deities that had this kind of messianic quality, and they'll try and align these prophecies. The problem with that is you look on any pagan calendar and you can plop any pagan festival near any date on the calendar because they were so frequent. So it doesn't really make any significant difference that they have these similarities or the, the, these details. So uh, that's another thing that can be brought up similar to that kind of criticism of the dating of Jesus's birth. But that's the main one I've heard as to why they don't believe it was that time. Yeah. Yeah, Rich. So uh, as I recall from the story, uh, didn't they go back and figure out there was something that would have led the Magi, and there's a triple conjunction, which is when the planets go like this yeah. sometimes, it could, yes, yeah, because you can rewind the stars back however far you want now that we've mapped them long enough and we know their patterns. And so um, somewhere around the year 4 BC, 4 or 3 BC, there was alignment of Jupiter, Saturn, and Venus, I believe, that is sometimes called the Star of Bethlehem because Venus, it looks like the brightest star in the sky. Um, when it's illuminated in our in our hemisphere and it usually is very close to the moon And so all of that light would have been pretty significant Jupiter also is always a sign for people who read the stars of the king It's the king of the planets that represents Zeus And so that's why they said we're here to see the king of the Jews because they saw the sign of the king in the sky um, So that's what they do believe there is also a, a famous comet Halley's Comet, I think, um, around the year 6 or 7 BC that they said could have been it, could have led them in a particular direction. But those are the kind of the astronomical signs they believe could have been present at a time where the Magi would have seen it and then begun this trek. Um, the problem with dating that is that it's, there's no clear sign that the Magi came at the moment of Jesus' birth. Um, because by the time they came to him, they were in a house in Bethlehem. They were no longer in the cave. So some time had taken place, or it had passed. Uh, so Jesus could have been as old as one or two by the time the Magi finally showed up. So uh, we have kind of a wide range of astronomical possibilities that could have been that kind of star of Bethlehem. Or very well, it could have just been something miraculous that we don't need any scientific explanation for because God can do that. He does that all the time. So... Um, which brings me back to my question for reflection as we close it up. What could be possible? What divine, miraculous, supernatural things could be possible in your life and in mine if we weren't afraid? If we followed the example of the Blessed Mother, if we said yes, if we were willing to go wherever God led, if we were willing to let go of our plans, our ideas of how our life looked, our ideas that maybe God can't use me because I'm too messed up or I'm too big of a sinner or I'm not gifted like that person or I don't know all the answers, if we just set all that aside for a moment. And we recognize that instead of coming to the high priest or coming as King Herod or coming in the temple in Jerusalem in a very significant place, Jesus was born to a poor family whose mother was a child, 12 to 15 years old, 
proper age of betrothal at that time, but still very young, poor in a backwater nothing town of Nazareth that was very new with about 100 or 200 residents, nowhere on the map, nowhere significant. And yet because of one faithful yes, the entire shape of Western society and all of human history was changed forever. And so what could be true if you and I set aside our expectations and recognize God likes to work in very upside down, backward ways sometimes. He likes to surprise us with his grace and not give us the whole plan because what fun is that? And if we were just along for the ride and allowed God to work in us, to recognize his faithfulness is always at work, it's always true, and we can just trust in him. And so this, this Christmas season, as we, as we end this Advent season and go into the Christmas season, I really want to invite you into that place of contemplation. What could God do in my life if I expected the unexpected? If I every day woke up and expected miracles to happen? What could he do? Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord, so much for this word, so rich in reflection and so many other things that we could have talked about, Lord. And so we, we ask that you inspire us and challenge us to take some time this week to really sit with Scripture, to sit with this passage, to soak it in, and to, to glean everything that we can out of it, at least everything that you desire for us to, to perceive and experience so that we can grow in deeper relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Bible study, and the knowledge is important, but the knowledge is nothing if it doesn't drive us deeper in love with you. And so we pray, Lord, that we would continue to follow you and seek you out and be in relationship with you, to pray each day and to not neglect that time that you are inviting us to spend with you. Bless us each in the ways we most need it as we finish out this Advent season and anticipate the joy of your coming at Christmas. Help us to expect you to come in miraculous ways into our lives each day, to be born in unexpected ways in and through us each day. And we thank you, Lord, in advance. We praise and bless you in advance for all the ways that you will surprise us and that you will bring your grace to us and others in the coming weeks. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sorry.